I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. Hey everybody, Max Boltman here alongside Corey Pronman for another episode of the Athletic Hockey Show's Prospect Series. We are at the time of year, Corey, the trade deadline, where we are liable to have this be outdated real quick. Um, but as of this moment, as of this recording, uh, it's already been a, a pretty eventful deadline, some big names moving around, and I think most interestingly, not all in season, but there have been seven picks, first round picks, uh, already traded for the 2023 NHL draft. This has been a a much discussed NHL draft, uh, given the the kind of players at the top of the draft. Um, And I I wanted to know kind of your thoughts on that, seeing this much capital already moving around for this 2023 draft. I I mean, it's, it's really interesting. And obviously we saw that just recently uh, with, with the Ryan O'Reilly trade, uh, Toronto moves its first round pick in the upcoming 2023 draft. And you know, I, I, we, you and I have had, had many discussions about the upcoming draft class, the depth of the draft, uh, the hype around the draft, and whether the hype is justified or not. But I, and I do think it is a good draft class. If, if you look at my most recent 
draft ranking. I'll have another one come up in a week or two, and uh, the tiers will look roughly similar with some with some minor tweaks. Uh, you know, I, I think there are whatever 15, 16 really good hockey players in this draft and, and, and roughly, I think, 35, 37 good prospects in this draft, which would be slightly above average uh, from the historical norm. And the very top is well above average from the historical norm. So I do think this is a strong draft class, but I think it's an interesting discussion where you hear, where you think about what is a deep draft. I think when some, not all, but some people, whether in the media or fans or whatnot, call a draft deep, I, I sometimes get the impression they think that there's 20 extra good players than there is usually. Like it's going to be a 2003 draft class. It's going to be maybe even another 2015 draft class. But the reality is what an above average draft typically looks like is, you know, maybe there will be 33 to 35 good players in a normal draft. And in a deep draft, it's like 37 to 39. You know, and, and I also sometimes think it can be hard to conceptually grasp what deep looks like in a draft. And I sometimes think there are certain biases that come into play with that. Uh, you and I, uh, the other day, were having a discussion about past draft classes. And 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 my rankings are by, by no means authoritative in any means or, or mean I'm right or not. Uh, but I had done a recent ranking of the 2019-2020 draft classes where I kind of tiered the players and projected them at various levels. And you thought... For sure, the 2019 draft was deeper than the 2020 draft, correct? Yes, yes, very much so. And and when I did my rankings, I had more players graded as a middle of the lineup player or better with the 2020 draft than the 19 draft. I think it was like two or three more players, mind you, and maybe a couple little higher grades in in the next tier as well. But the difference was the 2019 draft had you know, stars at the right. top. Jack, Jack Hughes, Hughes yeah. Trevor Zegers, Mart Sider, Caulfield. Caulfield, yeah. I mean, like I said, I mean, even at Bowen Byram too. Like it's just, you know, it, the top of that draft is absolutely loaded. But then it's like, okay, but what does the next 20 players look like? And there's still good players there. But I think, I kind of feel like a similar thing is happening with this draft class where the, because Connor Bedard is so good, because Adam Fantilli is so good, and Leo Carlson and and, and Matvey Michkov, and you know maybe one or two other players look like such incredible prospects that I think it kind of warps the discussion of this draft. From this is you know, a loaded draft from top to bottom. There's going to be 45 good players that come from this draft instead of we've got some really special players at the top of this draft. And afterwards, you know, it looks interesting. And the implication of that as we talk about these picks that are getting moved, right, is certainly no team that uh, trades these picks expects to be picking uh, where they are. And most, with the exception of possibly uh, the Florida pick that Montreal owns and the Islanders pick that Vancouver owns, but there's some protections on that that would insulate them. Uh, most of these are are beyond the range where we're talking about the depth of this class, right? That range is in terms of the, the high end tier, which would, you know, maybe be five deep or four deep, depending on, you know, on your thoughts on a couple of players at the very top of the draft. And then the, um, you know, the kind of the secondary, the really good tier, which might go to right. 15, 16 instead of 11, 12. That's fair. Right. Yeah, I feel like you're seeing teams right now, they are not willing to trade up a chance to get Adam Fentilli or Connor Bedard. 
Yes, but they are they are they are very willing to trade up an opportunity to draft Quentin Musty or Gabe Perot or Lucas Dragasevich or or whoever. I think they look at those players. They think they're not too dissimilar from what other late first round picks tend to look like. So this is a good lead, and we we had an unbelievable mailbag today. In my opinion, I, I thought it was the toughest time I've had whittling down questions uh, so far. Um, Let's pull two of them up right here because they're on this topic. One is from Philip G. How valuable is pick 32 in this draft compared to previous drafts? This is right on what we're talking about here. And my answer, Corey, would be identical. Is that fair? It would be for me too. The only reason it would change is if one of those like premium locomotive kits somehow made it their way to 32. The which, yeah. Yeah. If that's that could change the calculus a little bit. And I think we saw that when McKenzie pulled the teams that, that Boot and Simashev were in that yeah. range. That would, that would be really exciting if one of those two players gets there. I'm skeptical, but, but it's, it's possible. But otherwise, I tend to agree with you that 32 this year looked similar to 32 last year and similar to 32 the year before that. Which leads into the other question from Joseph Nowariak, who says, every year seems to have a deeper draft class than the one before it. What are some of the pitfalls of evaluating 24s at the same time you evaluate 23s? I think he is right on the nose here of, of what draw of what drives this, right? Because right now we're watching these 20, uh, 2023 kids and we're watching at the same time the 24 kids, sometimes in the same games. And I remember last year at the Combine, um, we were talking in the um, Combine Hotel and you were showing me what were at the time my first looks at a couple of different players, Zach Benson of the Winnipeg Ice, who was playing on a team with Connor Geeky and Matt Savoy, and Cam Allen, who at the time looked like kind of the, the maybe the preeminent defenseman in that class. When you're watching these guys at the same time, you're, you know that they're a year younger, they're a year out, and look how good they are. Zach Benson was, you know, not far off Matt Savoy and Connor Geeky, if not at some points a little even ahead of him. Um, right. But then the draft year comes and things change. And I think Joseph's like right on the money here. This is what drives it, right? It's that sometimes we're watching these in real time and we go, wow, with one more year, how good are they going to be? But sometimes that doesn't come. Sometimes they stay mostly where they're at. Right. And Benson and Allen will be two different cases. Benson has yes. still still a very strong prospect, whereas Cam Allen, I'm like, he may not go top two rounds anymore if, if I had to bet. That's a very two very different cases. Benson, I still think, will be a strong first round draft pick and had just come up a four-point game the other other day. Uh, but you're right. And, you know, we were going into that draft, that, uh, the 2022 draft, we were having discussions summer before about the draft of, you know, Shane Wright and Matthew Savoy and Brad Lambert. And, and, and that changes quickly. It is really difficult to evaluate a draft a year out. I say this all the time and, and, and I, I'll say it again, that just so much changes in the period of a year. And then the year after from now, a lot's going to change. You somebody might have looked at you side eyed if you would have said this time last year that Jimmy Snuggerook is the second best forward yeah. on the program, and he. I'm not saying he is better than Cutter Gauthier, but there's but a the, case. I, there, there is a conversation right now about it, and it's a lot changes in, in the course of a year. Um, and I think another issue is we lack the context a little bit. Like I will. In my lead up to the draft, like that's kind of what I was doing at the combine. I'll watch, I'll go watch the top underage kids. I'll dig, I'll dig into them a little bit. I'll watch. I go to the seventeen challenge to watch the kids there. You catch them at various other events throughout the year because you're watching somebody else. But you lack the context of really seeing the entire age group and 
stacking guys up against each other when you've really dug into these players. And I watch, but you're, it's a difference between watching them in a cursory look leading into the draft and doing what you do in the draft year where you're really digging into these players. You're asking a lot of hard questions. You're talking to a lot of people about them. You're trying to get to, you know, really know these players. It's a different level of expertise. So yes, it probably leads a little bit to too much of a hype machine based on whatever accolades or statistics they get in their past season. Um, it's going to happen next year. You know, I'm sure people are going to, you know, rightfully start hyping certain prospects that are having great underage seasons, but uh, we we will see where we are this time next year. I mean, no, I can't, I did not talk to anybody, never mind the media. Never, I didn't talk to any, many scouts this time last year who were telling me how good David Reinbacker was. Right. And, and I and I think he's the odds on favorite to be the first defenseman picked in the draft right now. Yeah, and that, that's kind of why I why I use the Benson and Allen, right? Is because they it can go either way. It can go, yeah, okay, Zach Benson, whether you thought he's, you know, top five then and still do now, or you think he's more top ten now, like he's pretty much delivered. But Allen, it goes the other way. And so but when you see the the performance, it's hard not to think all of them are gonna keep that up, right? Especially, you know, you even see these guys who come into the world juniors or our, our double underagers at the U18s, like an Aaron Kiviharyu, and we'll see where it goes for him. I mean, it, it, but it's hard to not get excited and think every one of these guys is going to be what they are. Yeah, I mean, leading into the summer of his draft season, there was no reasonable arguments to suggest Brad Lambert was not going to be a first-round pick. Like, right. This is a guy who, as an underage player, was one of Finland's best players at the World Juniors. And he still did go in the first round, but he, but he walked the line – and and I guess it just so much changes in the course. Atu Ratu, same deal, right? Yeah, yep, hundred percent. Awesome. Well, so I I think that's a that's a good context to keep in mind here as you talk about the the twenty three class and as you talk about the twenty four class. If your team gets, you know, the St. Louis Blues now have three first round picks, and it might seem like, oh my god, three first round picks in this class, you know. Um, I guess kind of similar to how the Bruins had it in the in that twenty fifteen class, I guess, but. Um, I don't think they're going to be quite as uh, as early as those, but you know they're they're still likely by the time most of those picks are being made, it, it's going to have leveled off. I do think though there are some really interesting teams to talk about here in this deadline and what they're going to do. And none of these teams are are ones that I think are going to be trading first round picks by any means, but they are teams that you know in recent years have been looking to acquire them. And I'm talking about the three Atlantic rebuilders: Buffalo, Detroit, and Ottawa all of whom right now are within shouting range, Corey, of the playoffs. The Red Wings and Sabres especially, yep. uh, by math, like have really good paths to the playoffs. Now, whether you think they'll get there, whether you think they're overachieving or not, that's its own question. And, and I guess it kind of fuels my question, which is what would you do here as these teams? Are you still, if you're the Red Wings, are you looking to potentially trade your pending UFAs like Tyler Bertuzzi, who I don't know if he gets a first, but given what guys have gone for, I don't think it's crazy to, to ask for that. Or are you saying, hey, look, we've been through the ringer here. Let's chase this. Let's try to make this playoffs. When I've talked to teams in this position, I get conflicting answers on what the best path is. Because I think these are hard decisions to make. I think these are hard decisions because you know deep down what the best thing for your long-term organization is. That is 
you know, in 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 a bubble, it's to trade the UFAs for the for the picks and the prospects because even if the Buffalo or Detroit makes it in, the chances of them winning a Stanley Cup this year are extremely small. I mean, right. Buffalo's got a really strong offense, and like I could see a reality where if they get in, they could they could maybe up, get an upset in a round, but but they also let up a lot of goals too. So you you would it would just be really hard for me to imagine them making a long playoff run but when i've talked to to people in management in these situations especially when you are an organization like these three and this isn't just you're on the bubble this is organizations that have spent a long time rebuilding uh, i mean what i mean buffalo detroit ottawa you know they spent a, they have you know had a lot of losing seasons yep. and they're trying to turn around and in all three situations especially in ottawa and buffalo uh, they have a lot of really good young players there. I mean, Detroit too also has really good young players. And what I often hear is, I don't want to develop a culture of losing uh, with my organization. I don't want to look towards whether it's Rasmus Dahlin or Tim Stutzel or Dylan Larkin and or and Mort Sider or or whoever and say, "Well, back, all right, you guys gave it your best. Back to losing this year. We'll try again next year." You know, they want to make try and make sure that these guys at least feel energized and. Have a are part of a playoff run and and feel like the organization is trying to win with them. Uh, so I I don't know what the best move to make in in this spot is. My my lean is to stand pat. If you are really in a playoff race, it's it's hard for me to justify trading away guys. It's it again. I get the team building aspect of it. But if, if I was a manager, I have a, I would have a really hard time looking at my leadership group afterwards after I just trade away one of our best players and telling these guys to compete hard for the next 20 games. So this might be flawed thinking on my part. I, I agree with you. It, it's a hard sell to the room. I think standing pat would be one of the tougher ones for me to stomach as as a GM because you still might not make it. You still don't know if, if, if you're kind of in a little bit of a mirage, right? The Red Wings have won like sure. nine out of 13. And it's totally possible that they still aren't going to make the playoffs. And if that happens and they lose guys for nothing, I think I would still feel a little bit like, oh, I I, uh, I, I believed it too much, right? I think I would almost want to do like a, a light buy or a, or a light sell. Obviously, you're not going to make explosive trades that are going to tank your locker room um, or tank your, your future. But I think sure. you got to do one – you got to either improve your chance enough that you can really – feel good that you're making the playoffs to me or uh or you, or you got to kind of be disciplined to, to your process or whatever but but i i feel like i'd have a hard time standing pat were the islanders a bubble team like the year they traded for ryan smith and they I traded like a right. top and they traded like a first round pick and like a good prospect who didn't pan out uh so it's not un, it's not unreasonable to, to 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 buy in that situation i mean you could argue the islanders kind of did that again with bo Horvat. i mean the team's I mean, they're they may or may not make the playoffs, right? But they but they made a big move right now. Uh, but I see the case both ways. It would be a really tough decision. It would, and 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 you know maybe standing pat is is better than I'm giving it credit for. But it's uh, it's going to be interesting to watch with those three teams. I just think when you light buy or you light sell, particularly when you light sell, like if you're trading whatever uh, a bubble guy for a third round pick, like that's like that's, it's it doesn't mean anything, right? Like you're not changing the direction of your organization. At all, so well, then I mean, do a light buy and trade a third round pick for one of those guys and make your locker room think like, oh wow, they believe in us, you know. 
yeah, I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do too. I just don't think any of those three decisions really meaningful meaningfully change anything. That's fair. And for both of those teams, I think we can we can agree. Like the the big pieces that are gonna decide their long-term future are are likely their current prospects or their current young players. Like that is we're at that point now. This is not we're not talking about San Jose here at this point. Sure. But you know, I mean how has Larkin seen a playoff series yet? Yes, but in his first year, you know, he was really young. Um, I, I think there's a there's a good argument for that, right? And and he's 26 years old. Rasmus Dallin hasn't played in the playoffs yet. Yep, right. That's right. No, it, it, it's a good point. I mean, I think if you can, and that's why I think if you're going to do something, it has to be to, to or or not sell, I should say. Then you have to really start to go in on. Okay, then this is what we're what we're pushing for. It's not just let the chips fall when they may. For me, at least. One more rebuilder that I want your take on, Corey, is the Devils. Obviously a different spot than those three Atlantic teams we just mentioned, but we think they'll buy. How, how aggressive would you be here? Are you are you going full out for Timo Meyer yet, or are you still being a little cautious? I think they are on that precipice of trying to be really aggressive, and I think it's just because, one, they are a very good team. And I think if you look among the, the top contenders um, – I think they have the most prospect capital to play with, right? In terms of the pieces that they can they can move around. They obviously were just recently a rebuilding team. They've had a lot of high draft picks, uh, and and there are parts here that that they can use in a trade. I, I know Alexander Holtz recently left an American League game recently. We'll see what the status of that injury is, uh, but but he would be you know, a big piece if they decide to put him up. They have other first round right. picks in the organization, whether it's Shakir Makamadoul and whether it's Nolan Foote. Um, they have other, you know, high picks, whether it's Seamus Casey or or other recent high picks that they can use. Uh, Nikita Hukta, Kevin Ball, there's uh, Akira Shmin, Nico Dawes. Like there's a lot of pieces here that they can use as part of a trade uh, to whether it is for Timo Meyer or any other piece that maybe that isn't Timo Meyer. All right, Corey, let's go now to uh, some of the free agents. You had an article this week about kind of the top, as you do every year, top college free agents, top European free agents. Uh, my opinion reading this, maybe a little bit of a lighter crop than I think we're used to seeing. Is that a fair take? Is that how NHL teams view this? Not as maybe impactful of a, of a – they're never as impactful as I think fans want them to be, but even just skimming this a little bit. It doesn't seem like there's real needle movers at the very top of this yet. Right. Usually, not every year, but one every two years, one every three years, the, there's one or two guys who everybody is chasing, everybody is really excited about. That, like, okay, these are the these are real players. They will make a difference in your organization. Last year, that was Andre Kuzmenko, for example. Ilya Mikheyev was a couple of years ago who went to Toronto. Uh, but this year, I would say lacks that. The top guy for me this year is Hardy Hamadaktel, the former Nashville draft pick, uh, who's been a big part of a top SHL team this year in Vacchio. Uh, big defenseman, could move the puck well, defends well, but not you know six four, six five, but not an amazing skater. Uh, and he's a guy I kind of think realistically is a is he, I think he'll be a full time player, but he's like a, a full time third pair. Kind of think of. Like what Zach Whitecloud is as a college free agent signing for Vegas. Like he's not going to play big minutes, but he's a. But I think this is a guy who can be a useful piece for an NHL team. Uh, but you know, arguably, and again, there's a couple other guys I mentioned there. I think Jake Livingstone's going to help a team. I think Sam Sam Malinsky from Cornell can help a team. I think Victor Osman's a really solid goalie prospect. Reese Gaber from North Dakota is a solid prospect. But I think really the guys who are going to help 
teams just as much as a Hamanak tell, if not more, are the two guys who have been drafted and have made all indications that they are not going to sign with their current NHL teams, which is Henry Thrun, who plays at Harvard, was drafted by Anaheim, and Eric Portillo, the goaltender from Michigan, who was drafted by Buffalo. So with Portillo, I, I think you know the way that goaltending has been in demand in the league, I think he, he makes sense to start with him. Um, makes sense a little bit, obviously, with, with Devin Levi being in that organization. Seems like maybe the path to opportunity they are probably not as open as it would be. Do we have any sense yet for who's going to be in on him? Is it the kind of thing where anyone who can be is in on him? Anybody emerging? Yeah, I mean, you have, I think, with Portillo, and I think this is partly because of Devin Levi and also Uku Pekalukanen is playing a lot of games right now with the Sabres as well. So there's there's competition there. So he's using his leverage. And now you guys are looking around the league and think, okay, where is there not as much competition? And you can think of a few organizations. You know, I look at Seattle as a team without great organizational depth in goalie. I, I yep. look at Tampa, who obviously they have Vasilevsky, but it's you know they could use a guy to be a, a good number two for Is a Portillo long time. Is Portillo better than Olnefeld? I'm not sure, but you know, like I said, I mean, it doesn't mean just because they don't have great depth doesn't mean they don't have any good players down right, there. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I, you know, and as a, as a free agent, you know, he gets to choose where he wants to go. But you know, San Jose is one that that, that I think of. Um, you know, I think of maybe you know the Kings is one that doesn't really have a top goalie prospect right now, especially given how Cal Peterson's development uh, has gone. So I think those are all options that are in the air, uh, but but we'll see ultimately what happens uh, with him. And when I say that I think he's gonna, these are like the top prospects. I don't mean to say that I think Portillo or Thrun are gonna be like difference making prospects. I just mean I think these are NHL players. Are they gonna be good NHL players? I they need. I think both of them have things to prove. Portillo has the athletic toolkit. He's big and he moves well. I think he needs to be more consistent. And Thrun is a really intelligent defenseman, uh, but his skating will be tested at the higher levels. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Corey, let's talk now about the, uh, the recent U18 Four Nations tournament in Finland. And th- that tournament kind of was the, uh, the story of the season for, for the U.S. team. Uh, with the the U.S. top line of Will Smith, projected top 10 pick, Ryan Leonard, top half of the first round pick, and, and Gabe Perot, potential first round pick. Uh, kind of steamrolling the competition from what it sounds like. Yeah. I uh, mean, just looking up their stats uh, right now, Perot, nine points in three games. Will Smith, eight points in three games with four goals. Ryan Leonard, seven points in three games with five goals. Uh, that top line was just outstanding. In, in that tournament. Uh, whenever they were on the ice, they were creating scoring chances. 
uh, you know, they were just a ton of energy, ton of skill, pace, you know, everything you wanted to see uh, from a top players in an age group. Uh, I thought Will Smith in particular was just outstanding. I haven't like, loved his play over the last month or two. I think we had kind of talked and hinted on this podcast. Like, is he for sure the top guy on this team? Uh, but he was really good in the November tournament, and then he was really good again in the February tournament. And I think he's kind of locked in that he is the top guy on this team. Not to take anything away from someone like Ryan Leonard, who I thought was outstanding as well at this tournament and did everything you could want from him. He was playing hard. He played with pace. He was making high-end skill plays routinely. He was scoring. And this is a guy that is definitely uh, may not trending up. He was already really highly rated, but he's a guy who coming out of there. That I know there's a lot of buzz among NHL people and I think he's going to be, you know, for sure top half of the first round draft pick could be top 12, could be top 10. I think he's going to go really high. Uh, in the draft. And then kind of on the other side of it is we had talked about maybe Smith was getting pressured maybe by Leonard, but also maybe by Oliver Moore. And I, and I don't think this was Oliver Moore's best week. I I think like skating is awesome. He's, I think in my opinion, the best skater in the draft and he wasn't playing with as gifted players. He wasn't playing with Will Smith. He wasn't playing with Ryan Leonard or Gabe Perot. So he didn't have that kind of skill around him. But in November and for most of the year, he frankly hasn't had that. And he's found ways to score. He's found ways to stood out. And I thought at this tournament, he was just okay. Uh, you know, he wasn't bad, but he didn't, he didn't drive it. He didn't, he wasn't creating a ton of offense. I think he only had, I think one or two points in the tournament. Uh, so I, it just wasn't the showing I was hoping for him. And, and I left this tournament thinking there was a gap between him and Smith. So all year when we've talked about Oliver Moore, I think you've been quick to draw the the parallel a little bit to Dylan Larkin in his draft year and, and playing on that second line behind this, you know, all world top line and, and what that maybe does for the perception of your production, I think, especially. And, and you've teased kind of the idea of like, what is Oliver Moore going to look like when he potentially gets some call-ups to the U18 team from the 17s, a couple of players on, on the USA 17 team, James Hagens and Cole Iserman. Um, it, does it seem like that's coming here soon? Is that going to stick? Or I believe well, we're recording this on Wednesday and uh, it posts on Friday. And I believe on Friday, Hagens and Eiserman are going to be playing their first game of the season with the 18s. And I believe they will be on a line with Oliver Moore. Okay. Uh, so we will see now how this new look team performs how Oliver Moore performs surrounded by guys like Hagen and Eisenman who are outstanding prospects and are full of offensive skill and, and creativity. And Eisenman is an elite goal scorer. Uh, so it will be really interesting to see how Oliver Moore plays for this next month and leading into the U18 World Championships. I, I kind of love the rhyme that, that becomes possible with the, the USA program just because it, it seems like there always seem to be kind of these archetypes and sure. I just wonder, you know, is 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 Oliver Moore going to be the the cutter Gautier of this draft class? Not similar players really at all, but but in terms of shooting up at, at the end of a season, you know, when you talk about Ryan Leonard, one of my thoughts was, is this going to be the Jimmy Snuggerud of this draft class? And, and we look back and we say, oh, this guy who had all these, you know, multidimensional elements coming through, and and he looks like one of the very best forwards in that class. So it's one of the fun things to think about the program. 
we look at the analogies you made, the one between Moore and Larkin, you can almost make one between James Hagen and Cole Eisenman and when Jack Hughes and Cole Caulfield came up. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So lots of fun rhyme to, to see how, how that all plays out. I, I want to ask you though, Corey, about uh, Edward Shala at the same tournament, a guy who I think for most of the draft cycle has been in or around that top 10 conversation. Uh, I want to know how things are trending with him and, and what you thought of his tournament. I mean, I, I had that player rated around that range almost all season. I did it with some trepidation because his numbers in the Czech League weren't outstanding. Uh, you know, he had a good, not great Holinska Gretzky, but he said, yeah, I thought he was solid at the World Juniors. And he didn't stand out, but it was a big part of a team that went to the gold medal game. Uh, he has, you know, that amazing U18s at the year before. The Czech League is a good league, so you don't want to kill a guy from not performing at that level. And he's big, and he can skate, and he has all the all this skill. So it was kind of like maybe maybe not making excuses for him, but but trying maybe not dinging him too much for not performing well all season because I I thought there was a still a really strong argument for him to be a top ten pick. Then he goes to this tournament, which is with his own age group, and. And he kind of bombs. He has one goal and no assists in the three games. It wasn't like he was getting snake bitten. When I was watching him, he just wasn't really standing out. I didn't like his effort at all in this tournament. And and that is scary. And we'll see how the last two months of the year and his U18 Worlds in April go. Uh, but I would, as of now, I would have a hard time pushing this guy into a top 10 on a list right now, just because I think he needs to be far more consistent, even if the talent is of that range. How about for Sweden and Finland? I think not a typical, you know, draft class, especially with the high end for, for this Finnish team. Um, but in Sweden, I think a lot of the intrigue probably coming on the blue line. Any any standouts from either of those teams at the tournament? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, Theo Lindstein led their team in scoring. Sending Pelica was, was very good. I think Sending Pelica will be a first-round pick. Lindstein, uh, not sure if he's going to be a first-round pick, but I think if he has another tournament in April, like the one he had in February, he's got a chance. And, he, and I, you know, he's, he's a good prospect, mobile, intelligent defenseman. Um, and, and Tom Willander only had one point, but people like him because he's, he skates really well and defends well. And he, and he did those things at that tournament. Otto Stenberg... Not spectacular, but he's got a hat trick in the last game against Finland. Yep. No other points, I believe, other than that hat trick. Um, and generally did a lot of things that you like, even though I don't think there's any dynamic about this 5'11 player, but he, but he's a good all-around player. And I think those are kind of the guys. Sandine Pelk will be really interesting, really interesting to see where he goes. Because um, I look at this player, and I don't think he is a special 5'11 defenseman. Uh, but he's definitely talented, good skater, very intelligent and this is a draft class that after when Ryan Backer goes, there's going to be a little bit of a gap between him and the next best defenseman for me. Yeah. And and, and we'll see where Sand and Pelica lands given given that situation. And and finally on on Finland, I just you know they had they they had a nice team and they actually beat the United States, which was a major upset. Although it was, that was more of a, their goalie played really well and USA's goalies did not play really well. And Casper Haltunen had a nice tournament. And he, Jesse Kiskinen had a nice tournament, but, but neither of them really stood out. If anything, it was the underrages on this team that really got you excited. They had a lot of really, they had a very young blue line. I think almost their entire blue line was, was underage led by Aaron Kivaharu, who will be a high pick in 2024. And, and I really liked the play of Consta Hellenius, uh, 
who's made like a, a slightly undersized forward, but has a lot of really good positive elements in his game, skating, skill, compete. And I think he has a chance to be a high pick next year as well. I liked Kiskinen when they were here in Plymouth earlier this year. I forget what event that was. Uh, that was the November Five Nations. And I think, you know, he will be, I don't think he's going to be a first round pick, but I think he could be somewhere go between the second and the fourth round. Yeah. All right. So maybe not the, not the high end, but you'll still see some some fins relevant here. I, I do think it's funny that there's a Hellenius that's a little bit underside. The, the Hellenius that I think of is Samuel, who's a monster. Right. And, and there's some late birthday fins like Lenny Hamanaho, Artu Karki. Like there's some other guys that will be, you know, Finland's still going to produce high draft picks. But yeah, it's not, the, it's not an amazing Finnish group this year. All right. Let's take a break right there. We're going to come back and we got a loaded mailbag that I'm really excited to get to. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. All right, Corey, to the mailbag. Uh, first one's from Ben Adelberg, who wants to know if you use any advanced metrics in draft analysis that you think are, uh, or, or do you think there are any that are effective for prospect evaluation? Seems like there's more people, uh, especially elite prospects, putting resources towards statistical evaluation. I think this one's interesting because for me, I, you know, it, one of the advantages of advanced stats tends to be, you know, that, that it can tell you things that the points don't, but sometimes... In, when it's prospects, points is really the only information you have to build advanced stats around. Yeah, and I think there's, I feel like that's hinting at that, but maybe like more of the other kind of things that you can like micro track, like zone. Well, Mitch threes. Brown, yeah, he does a lot of that. Yeah, that way, that kind of stuff passes. And I, when I think of the value of advanced metrics uh, at the NHL level, for me, the value has always been the, how it predicts things, right? That you learn something from this that you can't learn from basic points, shots, time on ice metrics, and it can help predict the future because in these other cases, it predicted the future better than the basic stats did. That's that's always been the logic. And I'm not saying with advanced stats in the prospect world, whether it's some sort of adjusted points per game based on age or league or you know tracking their scoring chances, tracking their entries. I'm not saying that can't be valuable. Uh, but I would need to see evidence that it actually helps you draft better. And I think with the, there's been research done with adjusted points that shows you that you can do those things. If you adjust for age, you adjust for, for league quality, team quality. I've seen that research that shows that can help. And so it makes sense. Um, I also don't know how much it really helps. Like I mean, like you can build a metric or build a model that does that. But I also feel like if you watch enough hockey and watch enough of these leagues, you can kind of do it in your own head a little bit. Like you, you know that whatever sure nine ninety points in the OHL, you know, is impressive. You know that 
five points in the SHL is decent, not amazing, not poor. Like there's certain things you can kind of like intuitively know. But so I see some value in it, but I particularly for like maybe the, the newer age statistics that are being used for prospect evaluation, uh, I tend to not put stock into that just not because I don't think it's interesting, but because I, I don't know how much it's ultimately going to help me, you know, do my job of predicting the future. All right. Fair. Uh, Jay Primrose says, did Kyle Davidson botch the tank in Chicago? He just kept adding players last summer instead of sticking with known commodities like Carpenter, Borgstrom, etc. Domi and Athens see you 27 goals, 55 points have surpassed to bring it 19 goals, 48 points, for example, who had that one on their bingo card at the start of the year? I don't know. Chicago's still pretty far down there. I don't know how he could have botched the tank. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, their their team's still pretty bad. And uh, we kind of hinted at this in the discussion, too, before about uh, morale with the teams that are on the bubble. I think maybe this is more about locker room morale. This is more about fan morale. And I think these are things that like ownership groups um, struggle with. And my conversation with management types is, like, you can only be so bad right like you right. you can't put an american league team out there and still expect to sell tickets to 40 something home games and the fans know what's up and and towards the end of the year you can start making some concerted efforts if it really becomes a battle towards the bottom and you seem to be in the mix to get Fantilli or Bedard or, or whoever uh but it, they see they they tore that thing down pretty good like like do you do you like try and move Seth Jones or try and force Kane and Taze out in the, in the summer. Like, I don't know what one more they could have really done. No, I don't know either. I mean, I don't think bringing in, you know, you can, you make the joke, but like they, they've combined for more goals than, uh, than to bring it, but you know, there are two players, right? right. And, and right. I don't right. think you, you knew Athens you and, you know, Domi's got 17 goals. He's having a truly fantastic season, but you might be able to trade him now. And then that gets you a new pick. I don't know why that's such a bad thing. I, you know, you're the third bottom team. That's that's about as much as you can realistically go for. You, you can't control once you're in that bottom five, right? Right. I just think they just they added those guys because they had to have like something that somewhat resembled an NHL roster, right? Like, and they were the right types because you know Max Domi might have a you know he's closing in on fifty points here, right? Like you know he's he's having a great year, right? And there's been times this year where Chicago's been last in point percentage too. So I don't know. I feel like. They tanked well enough, you know. You, you just you can't pre- always predict exactly how the season is going to go. To me, tanking is to get you into the area you want to be. I'm sure that they what what the question asker is probably most worried about is that you know he's they, not going to they they're the going to drop out of the top pick. four, yeah. right? Exactly, yeah. But they're they're in the ball game for Connor Bedard, Adam Fantilli, all that. Also, the numbers I think he had are. Are off because I think he must have asked him early in the week because I think Domi had a big game, but you know, they're, they're up even higher now. Domi himself has 46 <laughs> points. That, that's great. Uh, Mike Roberson says, How does Zach Benson compare to Jordan Dumay and Seth Jarvis? Two guys who went in vastly different spots in the draft, uh, but I think it's an interesting question. Better skater, right? Than, than Jarvis, is that fair? You're asking if Benson's a better skater than Jarvis? Yeah, no, I would say Jarvis is a better skater than Benson. Really? I, yeah, I think Jarvis is. I think Jarvis is one of his main assets is his skating. I think that's why he's able to make the NHL such a young age. I was able to play so well in pro hockey in the American League at such a young age. I think this is a whatever he's five ten, five eleven, but he's a really good skater. He's really competitive. He has all that skill. Like I kind of think if you would take Zach Benson 
and and add a degree of quickness and speed into his game, he would become Seth Jarvis. Like I think I that's, think he has I, the quickness and speed. I, I don't. That's interesting. That, you, you're talking about Benson in this regard? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would disagree. I think he's quick. I don't think he's fast. Okay. Uh, I, I would, I would, ch- I would challenge on on that one. Um, and I think that's the difference between for me between him and Jarvis, and and then kind of Dume is he has the skill of both of those players. Might even be the most you know in terms of skill plus plus hockey sense. Might even have the highest level of the three of them. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. You can have some reasonable arguments. Um, but he does not have either the skating of Jarvis or the compete of either of them. I think both Benson and, and Jarvis's yeah. competes are major assets, and he, I don't think that's his game at all. Um, and I think that's kind of how you create those those separators there for me. Uh, but I think it's yeah, it's like three very different levels of players. Like Jarvis is a foundational player for Carolina right now. But but I think it's interesting to see how those similar size players will all score very well in junior what those key differences are in terms of their pro projections. Yeah. It must be a projection thing that, because I, I don't, when I watch Jarvis in the NHL, I don't feel like he's like, you know, super dynamic speed or anything like that. I guess you could say Benson's not dynamic speed either, but I just feel like I, I see him I, separate I, I, more. Yeah. No, I would say Jarvis's skating is a, is a, is an asset just from, okay. whatever, from what I've seen. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Mac Blackwood's left heel. Where does the Sharks want Mercer to start a deal for Meyer? Is that a realistic starting point or should the Devils stay away? That's that's a, quite the ask in my opinion. It is, but I think that's what it's going to take. Like it's not maybe, – maybe not Mercer exactly, but it's going to take that caliber of player. Like when I did my U23 list, I had Mercer in the same tier as Matt Nyes. And I think if Meyer was going to Toronto, that was the ask was Matt Nyes. Uh, yeah. The difference in the situation is Mercer is on the team. He is a part of why they are good. Now, Meyer would be an upgrade on Mercer, um, but I think I can see the tension there a little bit because you you get better, but you also get worse, both in the short and long term. Yeah, I I, I just think you know with, with the system that you have, if you're the Devils, you should be able to do it without giving up a guy who's already making a big roster impact for you in Mercer. Right? I don't think like on like value, I guess it's not unreasonable, but in right. terms of a guy who's, who's a part of, of your team, a, a real part of your team right now. But given how good Meyer is, given his age, given that he has another year left, I can see if you're Mike Greer and the Sharks, how you don't, you need a one of those pieces coming back to be a premium asset. You know, whether it is Mercer, whether it's Nyes, whether it was, which obviously not going to be Nyes now, but you know what I mean? Like it has to be yeah, some, yeah. some some sort of premium piece. Like I don't know if you can get, you know, Holtz who can not even in the NHL, but is a good prospect. And, and that's the, the basis of your trade and really be excited about that. No, I, I agree with that. I, I That is fair. I mean, we've seen uh, like Pierre report the other day that uh, Carolina has taken Nikishin out of all talks. And that's the guy who, if I was San Jose, I would want from, from the Hurricanes, for example. But that's also assuming like Jarvis is off the table and, and certainly by all indications he would be. So I don't know. I, it just seems to me like that's a, that's a tough ass to take someone off your roster. I don't think the, the caliber of player is wrong, but it's just the off the roster thing, you know? Right. It almost would be, need to be like something else in that deal for me to, to make, to make that work if you're the devil's. Um, or if it's, if it is Mercer, it almost has to be like just Mercer essentially. Yeah. Like you right. can't, can't be, can't be Mercer plus a first plus whoever else. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough deal to do. And I think, uh, 
This leads into a good one from, from Kevin N. How or why is it difficult for teams interested in the trade and sign players like Meyer? I hear some teams with a philosophy of not allowing their rentals to talk extensions while being shopped. See Vancouver. But it seems to like to facilitate a deal that's inevitable and having the dialogue would only help. Chuck leaving Calgary appeared to already know what his extension was going to be right after being moved to Florida. This is a topic I'm fascinated by, Corey, because I think there is this idea that the, the return can only get better when you let the player's representatives kind of shop him for you. And I understand the logic of that because the, the acquiring team maybe feels a little better giving up something real. But I do wonder if you think there's a, a, a drawback here because enough teams do hold this this uh, back from from that, that, that I got to think there's some reason that they're doing it. And in your theory, when I've talked to you before about this, is you think it, it because it limits their trading partners, essentially. Well, imagine if you're a, a team trying to trade me and my agent goes around and talks and he talks to four teams. And I, I really like what one of those teams has to say, but they have by far the worst offer for me. And I start to really key in on it. I, don't, I might not have a no trade clause, but I might have already kind of made up my mind like, okay, well, Wherever I go, I'm definitely signing with the Rangers or whatever the Hurricanes because I loved what they had to te- what they had to say what their offer was going to be this off season. At that point, I don't know. That kind of seems like it would kind of hamstring you because all the sudden the other clubs know. Oh well, he's not really interested in signing an extension with me because he knows what he can get somewhere else. That's my theory. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. It's not really what's going on right now, but it's kind of what's going on with Patrick Kane right now, right? It's like he's not. He he's does not have a sign, no trade clause, right? But it's not like a sign and trade situation. But he's basically letting it be known he only wants to go one place and he's kind of putting the team that now that that's well known he's kind of putting the team that has him under contract in a tough spot right and and so even though yeah in theory you'd like to think oh all four teams know they can sign him all four are going to up their offers it might be that oh you know he's he's honed in on one or two and now those one or two kind of have you in their group and, and I don't know if that how often that happens or not this is me theorizing but that would be my fear in, as a general manager in that position as well. Now everyone who I wanted to think they were acquiring him as a rental with a chance to extend knows he's a pure rental. And that, that lowers the cost. Yep. No, I agree. InertNet says, you may see some skills and abilities differently now than you did 10 years ago. Are there any players this year who you'd rank differently 10 years ago? So I think he's saying in the 2023 class, who would you have been much higher or lower on when you, if you're using the 2013 Corey Pronman scouting handbook? It's probably a longer list than I'd like to imagine. Um, it, it is probably, you know, where those smaller skilled forwards fit, like the guys like Benson, the guys like Andrew Cristal, maybe even Gabe Perot to an extent. Uh, the guys who score a lot in junior, but you have some, at least on a couple of them, you have some questions on on how good they're going to do as a pro. I think I, I have Benson and Perot and even Cristal still rated quite highly. Um, maybe a guy like Riley Hyde or Cone Zimmer, who I don't have rated as highly, would be guys that would might get higher grades because they have a lot of offense and skill. But but both of them have um, serious questions on their pro projections. So I mean, those those seem to be the ones that come to mind. Weebrister wants to know your views on Dalibor Dvorsky. What makes him appealing as a prospect, and would you pick him in the top ten? Dvorsky has been a really tough one for me this season. Um, I've seen him play a lot. Uh, between live and video, you know, quite a bit over the last two years. And, and he's a really good hockey player. He's got a ton of skill. He could shoot the puck well. He scores a lot at the junior level. 
Um, he's done pretty well internationally with Slovakia over various events over several years. Um, skating, I think, is just okay. I think his compete isn't bad, but it's not a major asset. So like it's it's basically just a skill argument. And and when I'm not sure what you've thought, Max, but when I've watched him, like I see he's really talented, but I, I haven't seen like electric skill. When you're an average size guy with just okay skating, like you're to be a top ten pick, you need to have like electric skill. Like think about how skilled Matt Boldy is, and he didn't even go in the top ten. And I would argue he is more skilled than Dvorsky is. Uh, you know, I, it's, it would be, I would be hard pressed to do that right now in that range. I, I don't have him there. I know maybe a minority of scouts who have him in that range, but, but I'm not there with him right now. If we, we'd have to go back and see who, which order I had it, but I remember in our preseason predictions episode, uh, draft wise, I think I said that Leo Carlson would vault himself to be a top 10 pick and Dvorsky would vault himself to being a top five pick. Uh, Carlson has certainly vaulted himself into being a top five pick. Uh, and I'm, I'm worried that Dvorsky is going to end up dropping out of the top 10. Um, I, I, I like the player, but Carlson is a great example of what I was just talking about. He's again, he's yes. big, he's bigger than Dvorsky. He's six foot three, but he's not a great skater, but he's, you watch his SHL games. His skill is just dynamic. I mean, he really stands out with what he can do with the puck. And I just, I have not seen that when I've watched Dvorsky. It's actually, this is not what the question's about, but you and I were talking about comps for Carlson offline a few days ago. What about Boldy? How far off is he from Boldy? Yeah, I don't hate it. I mean, it's, I, I think he might even be better than Boldy when it's all said and done, but he, he may yeah. not be too. Uh, it really depends on how he transitions to the pace of the higher levels, but I think Boldy's a really good one. There's an implication there too about the position that people, I guess, will pick up on. But um, Dvorsky, I think, is probably more of a true center, I guess, but... Um, it, it is interesting. I, I think he probably back half or outside the top 10, very back half or outside the top 10 at this point. I wouldn't hate it at nine or 10, but I think if you gave me, if I gave you Dvorsky or Oliver Moore, I think, I mean, I'm probably taking more. What about you? Yeah. Like I would take more. I would, at least among the centers, like I might even, I would probably leap take Jaeger over him right now. Personally, I think, okay. I think, I think Dvorsky has more skill than Jaeger, but Jaeger is both faster and competes better, I think. And I don't think you're giving back that much offense. I, I would like to keep being a believer in Dvorsky, but I want I want that kind of signature moment or stretch here. To I, th- I think it's, if he goes to the U18 Worlds, I think that'll be a big moment for him, depending on how he yeah. performs there. Yeah, for sure. Jacob Anderberg, is Jimmy Snugger NHL ready for next year or would he benefit from staying in college another year, growing as a leader, more responsibility, add to his game, et cetera? I mean, and he's having an outstanding year right now. He's one of the best... Uh, players score, scoring wise in college hockey right now. I still lean to one more year. I, I I like it when the guys play two years at college, especially in Snuggerwood's case where he's not an amazing skater. It gives him more time to physically develop, so he can go right to the NHL instead of going to the American League right away. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what next year's World Junior team looks like for the United States because it, I think you've got three guys who are really good prospects and really good college players in Snuggerwood, Logan Cooley. And Karagoche. And what yeah. decisions do all three of them make? I my guess is Cooley signs and will be in Arizona next year. But um, but I if I might advise Snuggerud and I might advise Goche to stay. And then those guys, you know, can go with Lane Hudson, they can go with Will Smith and, and Ryan Leonard and Oliver Moore and be part of like and, and Stramble and Brindley and be part of this really uh, great world junior club 
next year for the States. Um, so that would be where I would lean right now. Uh, QC, oh, hand says, what's your read on Vili Hainal? He's had multiple cups of coffee in the NHL and has unquestionable offensive talent, but is just not stuck around yet. He's still very young for a defenseman, but I'm just not sure he fits in well with the Jets. Thoughts? The Jets are a team, Corey, that we've talked about this before. They already have their kind of small offensive D, and I wonder how big a part of this of that this is. Um, yeah, no, I think with Hanol, it's a good question. I, I agree with the questioner that, that he has really good offensive hockey sense and vision. Um, he's kind of like one of those bubble guys, though. Like, he's a good skater, but he's not an amazing skater. He's like five foot 11, so that he's not, his value isn't defense in the NHL, so it has to be offense, but it's okay. Is it good enough offense to, to, to feel comfortable playing him every day at even strength? And he's kind of on that precipice right now. And, we'll see whether it works out with him in Winnipeg or not. But I think those are always kind of the the concerns when you pick a small defenseman who is offensively minded is they need to be special offensively to be a top four defenseman in the NHL. And Hanola has looked good in the American League, uh, but I, I would argue he has not looked special offensively yet. I mean, he would have to displace one of, right, like a, like a Nate Schmidt or – and I don't think I don't see that happening. And I don't think you're playing him over Dylan Sandberg. So it, it, it I mean, would, could you see him getting traded here? It, I, I could definitely see that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it, I almost it's hard for me to look at the organization and, and really pick out where his future is exactly. Yeah, that's how I feel as well. Uh, John D, please explain why a prospect's age seems so important as evaluation. Players who are young in their class seem to be treated like gold. While overage prospects are commonly dismissed, I'm probably guilty of this one, Corey. I think I fall in love with the June or later birthdays, and and uh, I, I think most people know you got to make an adjustment on the October, November, December birthdays. But uh, how do you feel about kind of the June, July, August versus the January, February? I think it matters, but I don't think you and I, and I definitely incorporate into my analysis, and I and I you know I think it's important, but it's definitely not the end all, be all. Um, and sometimes it can almost get too nitpicky. Like I remember I was having an argument with somebody the other day about Nate Danielson versus Brian Yeager. And they're like, well, well, Danielson is much older. Like, you know, he's a late birth date. And I think like Yeager is born February. So, <laughs> you know, it's not, so it's, it's, a, it's a couple of months of difference in terms of age. Uh, so like those, th- those trivial things I find come up more often than not, you know, a year, two years matters. Um, if you're talking about maybe a 19 year old or a 20 year old, you got to take into account, you know, what, what does history tell us about these kind of players? And history sometimes is wrong, and sometimes there's evidence in front of your face to make you believe this guy is an exception because he's six foot two and he's a good skater and he's never had any offense, but now he's showing real offense. And it's like, okay, but he has this toolkit and now he has offense. Okay, so maybe he's going to be the outlier to the history. Those are all kinds of facts that you need to incorporate. Uh, when you're when you're doing these kind of exercises, um, but it's important, but it's you sh- it should not be everything to your analysis. Where I just to kind of play devil's advocate, like where where it does kind of carry weight for me is especially when a player when you're evaluating two players, even if they only have a few months between them, if one is in their third year in the league and one is in their second year in the league, I do think the year in the league matters a lot more for what I think of their production. Um, than than the actual just raw age because I think every year you play in a league you should get that much better and I, I think in in year three in a league you're about as good as you're going to be in year two you might still have some room to grow. 
I, I think that's generally fair. Although, like I said, I think if if we were talking about a guy who was third year in the league and he's born in December, and this versus a guy who's second year in the league, he's born in January. Like the the stats that I have looked at have tend to show the difference between those two. If they have similar production, it's almost inconsequential in terms of their NHL projection. Okay, that's fair. I guess that's just maybe a, a mental bias of mine, then. But I I typically look at like the third year as like this is a basically a draft plus one season. You know? Yeah, like if it's if it's a September guy who's a late birthday, like a September twenty seventh versus a guy who was born in March, I think that's I think that's a notable difference. Yes. Yeah. All right, that's fair. Um, Christian Harris. What is it about Andrew Cristal that has him all over the place in rankings? Some have him comfortably in their top 10, some outside their top 25. I think we've talked about him almost every episode here, yeah, but I think yeah. there's a lot of interest for, for this reason because this is going to be the guy. He's going to be the lightning rod in this draft between how I think a lot of the public scouts see him and a lot of the NHL scouts see him. I know. I almost rolled my eyes when we saw this question coming. Uh, I was like, I was like, for the same reason. It's like, I, nothing wrong with the, with the player. But I feel like we talk, we, we've already talked about him once in this episode. And now we're talking about him a, a second time yes, after right. what it seems like we talk about him every episode. Um, again, I don't know where he is at every single ranking, but I, I do know among people I talk to in the league, uh, there is a discrepancy in terms of where people have him. And it's because of the pro projection. It is the fact that he has incredible skill. Uh, he is one of the leading players in the entire CHL in points per game. Uh, he was injured for a couple of weeks, but came back and not surprisingly still scoring. And but he is, I think, central measurement like five nine and a half, maybe five foot ten. Uh, he is a awkward looking skater. Uh, you know, just a very you know unorthodox stride. Um, and I think his compete level isn't bad, uh, but it's not a major asset like it is, say, for Zach Benson. Um, and so you look at this player and I ask, okay, who does he look like in the NHL? And I, and I struggle to find a comparable. I don't think this was a good comparable, but like the best guy I was thinking of was for like a wonky looking skating five foot 10 winger with a lot of skill was Niels Hoglander for a, for a minute. Um, yep. I think Hoglander's compete is way better than his, but maybe Hoglander doesn't have quite the hockey sense this guy does. Yeah. Um, and, and that comp worked for a while, but now Hoglander is no longer in the NHL. Um, and, and after that, I, I kind of struggled to think of a guy who kind of looks like that. And I think Hoglander will be back, and I think he's a very good prospect, and I think Andrew is a very good prospect as well. Um, but that is kind of the risk in this debate is – uh, when you can't think of guys to compare these players to. I deal with this with Matthew Wood. I can't think of an NHL comparable for him. Um, doesn't mean they can't be the first. There was no comparable for Alex Zabrinkit before he made the league. Um, yep. And now and now there's two, him and Cole, him and Cole Caulfield. Uh, but when there are no comparables, it just, it just doesn't mean he won't make it. It just, there's risk. And I think the risk is measuring the fact I talked to scouts who think he is a clear first rounder. And I talked to some who would not take him in the first round. Yep. And I think what it comes down to is I think people want to look at it and say, this guy who produces all this much, the knock is that he's small. It's not just that. Other else, you know, we saw Cole Caulfield go really high despite that. And it, it was the difference here in the skating that that is going to make or break this. And we've seen guys like Brent Clark have big skating concerns, but he's 6'2", right? Like, so it's, it's, it's all these things combined. Uh, it's not really all these. It's really the two big things combined sure. uh, that, that account for this. Right. Uh, I, I, I think of the guys I kind of think of in terms of the direct comparables. 
maybe not direct, but in maybe like somewhat similar cases, it would be Bobby Brink, yep. who was the USHL's top scorer. And but and I would say maybe even arguably a worse skater than this guy. Um, and but and then maybe like roughly same size and went I in the second round. And I think of Ely Tolvenin, who didn't put up gigantic numbers, but had a great track record of scoring, uh, a lot of accolades, but was a 5'10-ish, okay skating, okay compete winger. And he went in like the mid to late 20s in his draft. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, when you set me, Corey, a couple weeks ago, set me this like elite prospects list sorted of of the five, was it 5'9 or 5'10? Or smaller wingers, and 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 how many produce what they you know what you expect in the role Andrew Cristal would be playing. It, it is eye opening of, of how little precedent there is for that, and the guys who do usually have that skating as as a, as a key attribute. He is fighting against history to have a long NHL career. Doesn't mean he won't do it, but it's just there's there's risks in his profile and as you kind of mentioned at the top of this question i'm gonna guess we'll be talking about this every single episode many again, more times going I, forward I, so i agree with you I, I feel like i have to write about this player at some point and kind of like illustrate what i'm seeing and because otherwise i kind of feel like when i say things like oh he has skating issues uh, some people maybe almost just like roll their eyes at me and be like what's skating issues he's two points per game doesn't seem to be holding yeah. him back in junior um so like I feel like I need to defend my point maybe more clearly uh, at some point in the draft season. You'll get plenty of opportunities. I feel good saying that. Last one here. Can you touch a little bit on how you evaluate context and how big of a role it plays in your overall evaluations of players? Three potent examples from your Tanner Molendyke playing on a defensive-minded team without much scoring. If he was on a high-flying team like Winnipeg or playing with an elite talent like Bedard, would he look like a top 10 pick? Is it fair to punish Dalibor Dvorsky for competing in the All-Sven skin when he looks SHL ready? His organization just isn't in that league. Uh, and is Denver Barkey's production more impressive considering he's still stu- stuck to the second power play unit? These are all questions kind of about how you evaluate a prospect's role and team context when you look at stuff like what we were talking about earlier, their production, the, the historical context in the league. Yeah, well, a couple of things to touch on. One, I would not call Saskatoon defensive-minded. They are fourth in their conference in, in goals. <laughs> um, but he is, it. I think, almost kind of piggybacking on this point on Devin Barkey is Molendick does not play on the first power play unit on his team, which I, uh, they have the overage there, Aiden de la Gorgendier, I believe that's how I say his name. Definitely butchered it, but that's okay. Uh, they have him on the top power play unit. So that's prevented Molendick from getting that opportunities, but he scored well as an underage. Uh, he was a power play guy at the Holinka for Canada. I, I don't sure this guy's going to be like a big time offensive player, but like, I think of, I think of Mario Ferraro when I watch this player. I think of Alexander Romanov when I watch this player. You know, average size, high skate, high end skating, high compete players with fine offense, but not not their selling points. And that's kind of what I think of when I watch this player. And I think if you watch Saskatoon, you know how they use their players. You've seen this player before. You can make those contextual adjustments. Um, in terms of Dvorsky, uh, I'm not sure I ding him for playing only in the Ausvenskin. But the Ausvenskin is a lower league than the SHL, and you want to make sure that if he's playing in a lower league, he's having, you know, you want to adjust for that context and make sure that he's performing at least at a reasonable level. I mean, I think his point per game is lower than, say, Leo Carlson's is in the SHL. So, I mean, that's reasonable information in discussing how his performance is. But when he's gone yeah. to juniors this year, he's been a two-point-per-game player. And I know there were many scouts who went to go watch him when they – 
heard he was getting a junior assignment uh, to see him have the puck all the time and see what he can do at that level. Um, so those you have to use all the information, his junior play, the Osvenskin play, uh, the World Juniors, and possibly the U18s, um, and evaluating him in terms of last one, Denver Barkey. Um, yeah, like London's a loaded team. Uh, and you have to account for that when looking at him, when you're looking at guys, uh, other players on on that team or other top teams, like say the Ottawa 67s, uh, that's, that's always part of the evaluation. And it's always really impressive when you have a guy like, say, Zach Benson, who is on one of those top teams and is still one of their best players. Like that's a massive argument in, in his favor. Uh, but I don't think scouts are holding it against Barkey that, that he plays lower in the lineup on a top team. Uh, they, they know what he is, whether it's good enough to be a – professional hockey player, an NHL player at his size without elite speed. I think he needs to prove that at higher levels. But I think people know this is a talented player, this is a competitive player, and that he would score more on a different team. In your experience, are people really knocking Dvorsky that hard for playing in the Allsvenskin? That one surprised me in the question. Yeah, no. I, I have not I haven't heard that one in particular. I think, you know, I think the argument always is with these pro players, whether it's Dvorsky, whether it's Chalet, uh, others is is being too critical on players who play the predominant parts of their season in the pros, no matter the yeah. level, because um, uh, it's hard to play professional hockey as, as a 17 year old. But when you have guys like Leo Carlson, you have guys like David Reinbacker who do it, it's it's all the more impressive, right? Right, for sure. And I mean, like it's probably hard. The Osvenskin probably doesn't have as many this le- prospects of this caliber compared to the SHL, but they are still like. The teams, the best team in the Osvenskin goes to the SHL at the end of the year. Like they're not that far off. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't it, seen people it, knocking Dvorsky for that. Yeah, it depends on the caliber of Osvenskin team you're on. That means a big difference. The difference between the, yeah. the worst and the best Osvenskin team could be a massive difference. Uh, but in terms of the caliber of players you're you're with, uh, so it's all relevant. And there's been plenty of draft eligibles that play in the Osvenskin, so you have comparables to base it off on. Um, like I said, like it, we. I use that a Reinbacker example because you and I were talking about the other day about uh, you know David Yerchek versus Reinbacker and um, and comparing how their seasons have looked and, and both of them played very well versus pros. Not surprisingly, Yerchek goes and plays very well versus pros right away in, in North America. Uh, it's just you know guys who tend to do that tend to be really high draft picks and premium prospects, and it's because they're not doing that uh, doesn't mean that they're they're not a very good prospect. All right, that is going to do it for us. Awesome mailbag today, guys. Great questions. Keep those coming. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. You can follow us on YouTube at youtube.com slash at the Athletic Hockey Show. And right now you can get a one-year subscription to The Athletic for $2 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. Do that, and we'll talk to you soon.